And it turns out that when you try to use a story to change someone's mind, in order to the, 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 the degree of behavior change is proportional to the degree to which the reader or the viewer relates to the central character. The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Um, tonight's talk is 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 one of my favorite kinds of talk. It's actually three of my favorite kinds of talk, um, uh, all in one. And and one is it's a talk that takes science fiction seriously. Uh, it's something that's really important to us here at Long Now. We think that science fiction uh, is actually one of our key ways of thinking about the future and uh, having conversations about the future. And in, uh, in, in this talk, we're going to find out it's not just science fiction, but fiction in general uh, that's, that's really important. So it's, it's that favorite kind of talk. Um, uh, another uh, favorite kind of talk is that it's a work in progress. And it's, it's not just a work in progress. So we have a lot of great talks that are speakers that have written a book, and they're doing a book tour, and um, they've, they've uh, talked about their book in all these different cities. And when they come here, hopefully, it's, it's, uh, it's a little bit unique being in this room and with a long-term thinking perspective on it. Uh, it it's something uh, that's different on, on a talk that they've given a lot of times. Um, this is the first time this talk has been given. There's maybe one proto version of it that, that was done. But uh, a lot of the work that tonight's speaker has done is, is for this audience and for, uh, for the audience watching later and for you know, so future work that's going to be done on this project. So that means it's not finished, it hasn't been, he, he is very much still uh, working on it. There's gonna be a lot of other uh, feedback and, and our feedback in this room uh, is actually gonna influence uh, where this goes. So uh, no pressure on your Q&A, okay? So, um, so that's the second favorite kind of talk, and, and also just something to, to keep in mind as we're doing this, uh, that uh, you know, not, all, not all the answers are there yet, but, but asking the questions might, uh, might be really key to the evolution of, of this idea. Um, and the third favorite kind of talk is it's a familiar face. Uh, James Holland Jones, uh, tonight's speaker, this is actually the third time he's been on this stage. Uh, and uh, he's, he's talked about diverse uh, topics for us before, and he um, he is a uh, uh, and and earth he's, he's a uh, earth science earth si don't say an earth system scientist. I said that right. Okay, earth system scientist, um, and he is a. Uh, an anthropologist, biological anthropologist, I believe. I said that right, too. Um, and, uh, you know, I always say about Jamie, and, and you're going to really see it tonight, uh, it's, he, it's this diversity of disciplines, this wide range of expertise, um, all kind of brought together with a, a, a serious rigor to uh, even areas that are not his native ground, as it were. And um, it's something really special in store for you tonight. So please uh, join me give a big round of applause for Mr. James Holland Jones, tonight's speaker. Thanks, Michael. That's really very kind. Um, I have, in fact, given this talk 
a, a prototype of the talk. Uh, I, I gave it on shipboard in the Galapagos Islands, and we were, we were actually, actually under steam when we did it. And so, <laughs> and I was right in the bow, and I literally was, was running from side to side as we were pitching. So I'm hoping the ground will be a little more stable tonight. Um, this is not something I'm... Uh, literature is not something I'm really an expert on at all. I'm not a literary guy. I'm very much a scientist. And uh, funny story, when I first went to Stanford, I was being recruited, and they asked me if I could teach a human nature class. And I was like, human nature, absolutely. That's my bread and butter. That's what I did. I taught that every semester as a grad student. No problem. I got this. I show up at Stanford. I meet with this guy in the German department who's going to talk to me about my human nature class. I thought, that's odd. Why would someone in the German department want to talk to me about human nature? It turns out that I had signed up to teach for this program called the Introduction to the Humanities Program, which had these rules, like you had to read five books, and they were supposed to be great books. It was sort of a great books kind of curriculum. Uh, I was like, huh, five books. In one semester? Okay, I think I've read five books before. <laughs> sure, I can do that. Uh, you know, typically I tend to read papers that are like three pages long. That's, you know, that's kind of the nature of science. Um, I managed to do it. I, I paired with a historian. We had a great class. Um, so tonight, rather than talking deeply about the literature, I'm going to talk about what I know more about, which is the science. And I'm going to talk about a bunch of different varieties of science here. Uh, I've been warned that, you know, I'm preaching to the choir when I talk about climate change, but I can't help myself. I need to talk a little bit about it. This is, this is Sao Paulo. Um, it's a city of, oh, my notes aren't here, of 12 million people. Um, it is on a coastal plain, as are three quarters of the world's megacities. These are cities over 10 million people are on coastal plains, okay? 40% of the world's population as it currently stands, 40% of 7.5 billion people live within 100 kilometers of the coast. This is Dhaka. Uh, that's not Dhaka. This is Dhaka. Dhaka is a city of 19 million people. It is not coastal. However, it lies on a triangle in between three rivers, and the rivers all flood <coughs> annually during the monsoon season. By the end of the century... 50% of Bangladesh, which, bear in mind, is, is the size of New York State. It's 147,000 square kilometers. It's the size of New York State. It has a, currently 163 million people in it. 50% of the land area is going to be inundated by the end of the century. Okay, um, New York City, average... Height above sea level is 33 feet. The highest point is 265 feet. It is, uh, I don't actually know how many people, I know how many people are in Dhaka. I don't know how many are in New York City. <laughs> A lot. Yeah, yeah, 7 million. Thank, thank you. All right, 7 million apparently. Uh, A lot of people and living in a very vulnerable spot. Uh, we currently have an administration of the president. <laughs> Who, who famously, and I don't know, I don't quite know what the right word for it is. I, he famously doesn't care about science, is disdainful of science, doesn't want to hear from scientists, despite the fact that we have 
a growing body of, of evidence for our own very senses. We have you know, images of floods, right? This is the, 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 the interstate in Houston, right? We have the tragic fires that we've experienced so nearby ourselves here, right? Um, as an anthropologist, as a demographer, as someone who thinks about human inter- interactions with, with the climate, um, I, I think about people in motion. Climate change will put people in motion. And uh, the, the, the great Pakistani author, Motion Hamid, you know, talks about, he, he says, we are all people in motion, right? We're, we're constantly moving, we're coming and going. So uh, I probably got the quote wrong, by the way, because my notes aren't here. But you could. <laughs> that was one of those things we were supposed to look at when we... Great, thank you. Yeah, that'll, that'll be good. I don't need them that much, but for quotes I do. Turns out it's, we are all migrants. We move through space and time. Right, and and in in a different talk, in a talk where I was talking in a more disciplinary way, talking to you as an anthropologist, talking about anthropological topics, I would talk about how one of the fundamental features of the human adaptation: we are the mobile species. When things get bad, we're, we it turns out we move around a lot in our home ranges uh, compared to other things that are a similar size to us, like chimpanzees, uh, or that we're closely related to. Um, but when things get really bad for us, we just up and move continents, and we stay there. It's a remarkable thing that we do, right? So we have a history from the very outset of Homo sapiens of being mobile primates, okay? Uh, and I would suggest to you that mobility will be the number one social issue related to climate change, related to pretty much anything in the 21st century going forward. People are fleeing conflict. People are fleeing drought and the collapse of, of, of subsistence farming. People are fleeing both. Uh, and this is, this is a fundamental part of my work right now. And I'm going to talk to you briefly about that after I show you my summary slide for the talk. I like to show the summary at the beginning because we all think we're going to build this great narrative arc and we're going to have this denouement and everyone's going to be hanging on the edge of their seat and they're going to tell you, you're going to be like, oh, wow, I get it now. It turns out it's way better to tell people what you're going to tell them at the outset. <laughs> so I'm about to do that. <laughs> okay. Um, I have four points that I'm going to make. Two of them I call them factual and two of them I call them instrumental. As in, I care about doing something about climate change. I would like to use stories to encourage other people to do things about climate change, okay? The first factual point is that fiction provides a powerful tool for modeling complex systems. And this is where my science comes in. I'll talk about what I mean by a complex system in a minute and give you a couple sort of passing examples to what I think uh, narrative can do and fiction can do. Uh, Stories are more effective than, than facts at changing people's minds. You can throw facts at people, you can throw facts at the president, right? And they're not going to change their mind. But stories have a chance to. They have to be the right stories. They have to be pitched correctly, they have to be compelling. But they give us a tool for, for changing people's minds. And that's a factual point. An instrumental point, right, is that fiction allows us to imagine 
better worlds. This is another Moshe Hamid point, and I think it's really important. I think it's difficult to overstate how important this is for moving forward. Uh, and secondly, I think we need a broad diversity of stories. And there's a really interesting uh, bunch of literature that I, I'll, I'll talk about a little bit in the neuroscience of storytelling and, and listening to stories that um, supports this idea that we need a broad diversity of stories, of forms, of voices, of people talking about climate change. All right, so I think that narrative is a great way, and particularly long-form narrative, uh, is a great way to model complex systems. What do we mean by a complex system? The canonical model uh, of lynxes and hares, I don't need to point to them, you know, which one's the lynx and which one's the hare. Uh, these, it's, a, it's a fairly simple ecosystem in, in northern climes in Canada. We've got lynxes on the right, eat hares. Uh, and what we see is in the, uh, both empirically uh, and theoretically, uh, the, they tend to cycle, right? And they, they cycle off uh, in, in periods that don't, that don't completely align with each other when the hares in the red are very abundant, right? The lynx population grows. It grows so high that it causes the hare population to crash. The hare population crashes, and then there's a little bit of a lag, and then the lynx population crashes because there are no hares to eat. And we keep doing this forever uh, in the theoretical model. Uh, we don't do this forever in reality. Um, I like to represent these things in what's called the phase plane. So th these, this is a time series. They're plotted against, they're, each population is plotted against time. Here we take time out, we make it implicit, and we plot the, the predators against the prey population, okay? And it's, it's sort of a, a, I don't know, a nicer way, I think, to, to visualize this. So Alan Hastings uh, is a theoretical ecologist amazing theoretical ecologist up at the University of California, Davis. And uh, sometime in the early 90s, he was interested in chaos. He, he works with predator-prey models and these sorts of things. And he added a single species to the classic, this is called the Locke Volterra model of predator-prey model. He had a single species with realistic parameters. So, you know, the, the like consumption rates, the mortality rates, all the, the sort of biological parameters that go into it. And what do we get? We get something that looks like this. Now, we have three species that we have to plot against each other in their phase planes. But we have, everything gets really crazy. We go from clock-like regularity to something that is, in fact, chaotic, right? So my, my auto-drawing, yeah. Um, and so the things about complexity that come out of this is that you have tightly coupled systems, right? When, when you only have one predator and one prey, uh, they're very tightly coupled. The, the one's livelihood depends on the other. We put a third thing in there, and, and it kind of throws everything off. It's still tightly coupled. It's also very nonlinear, right? So the, the, the uh, things can change very rapidly in certain regimes. Um, and when you put those two things together, you have the possibility for, depending on just what the right number of things are together, you get very different outcomes, and you get these crazy, squiggly phase, phase planes. This is a complex system. Coupling, nonlinearity, complexity. Very difficult to make 
predictions on because of, of the, it, it ends up having a, a great sensitivity to initial conditions. So this is the sort of thing that, that we work on in my group, uh, and I'm going to tell you a quick story about a pretty crazy uh, line of, of reasoning. This here is uh, an, an artist's rendition of the, the bacterium Neisseria gonorrhea. Anyone want to guess what disease that causes? <laughs> it's an amazing pathogen, by the way. It's... <laughs> I know it sounds gross. It's incredible. It's an incredible pathogen. I'm happy to talk at length about gonorrhea. I was down, I was down at, in San Diego. My son goes to the University of California, San Diego, and I was at an event, and he, and, and he called me over to the table. All the parents had dispersed, and he called me over to the table with a bunch of his teammates, and we're talking for maybe three minutes, and I say, gonorrhea. And all the boys at the table, a bunch of 20-year-old boys go, Yes! And I'm like, what? Did I just get played? And he's like, yeah, you know, I told him, just watch. You can make him say gonorrhea <laughs> in less than five minutes. <laughs> so this is gonorrhea. This is Neisseria gonorrhea. And uh, the work that I'm doing with a collaborator, Ashley Hazel, uh, who's an, another anthropologist, uh, working, work, who's worked in my group for a couple years now, um, we su suspect that there, we have a hypothesis that there's a linkage between climate change and the virulence of this pathogen, like how bad the disease it causes. And there's, it seems kind of like a crazy idea. Uh, the place where we're working is uh, Namibia in the southwestern corner of Africa. Uh, there's the, the line. So this is Namibia here. And the region that we're working in, Namibia is the driest country in sub-Saharan Africa. The region that we're working in is called Kakaveld. It's up here in the far northwest, and it is the driest region of Namibia. It is a dry place. And unfortunately, due to the local effects of climate change, it has gotten considerably drier. Southern Africa has had a protracted drought of about six years, and the people who live there are exquisitely adapted to a dry climate, but the thing about adaptations to a dry climate is you have to have wet years in order to make up for the bad, the bad drought years. But when you have six drought years in a row, things start to go uh, asunder. Uh, Water is hard to find. These are pastoralist people, and, uh, and there, so we, we've got this historic drought. What do people do? They respond, they adapt, and they adapt the way people have adapted for however long you want to define what people are. You, I, I could make an argument, right? Two million years, 60,000 years, whatever you want to say, right? Whatever critter counts as human, uh, I'm good with that. We've been mobile from that point forward. Uh, they move, okay? The pastoralist people of Kakaveld responded, as people have always responded, they adapted by changing their mobility. And the thing about changed mobility is it means that you make new contacts, okay? You, you move, you encounter different people, you, you move around a greater landscape, you move differently. You move to places you've never seen, you encounter people you've never encountered before, and the epidemiology of, of directly transmitted pathogens like gonorrhea changes. We typically use mathematical models to explore how this happens, and this is just a simple uh, network model. It's a, it's a sexual network uh, where we have just a little bit where people are, are actually moving for, you know, 
on average, about a week longer than they normally do. And you can just see from left to right the, uh, the outbreak cluster. The outbreak is the red. It's bigger when people move more, according to the assumptions that we put into the model. So this is the way I normally think about complex systems. But A, there's always a story that we tell that goes under this. right? And, and this, is, this is the logic that links climate change to gonorrhea virulence. Is it moves through adaptation, people going about their livelihood business, the social effects of that, and what that implies for the transmission dynamics, and then what the transmission dynamics then imply for the selective forces on virulence, okay? That's the complex system. We've got at least six different subsystems linked there. Um, we tell stories about it. We use math, we tell stories. When you write a novel, you have to, you have to do, engage in the process of world building. Right? And you have all these linked systems in reality. Just, I mean, this is, we have a reality, of course, but in, in you know, the, the New York City reality of Kim Stanley Robinson's New York 2140. This is the cover uh, art from that, from that book. And uh, uh, sea levels have risen by 50 years in a very short period of time. What does this mean for if, if they've gone up by 50 feet for a city that's on average 33 feet above sea level? What does this mean? Oh, well, you're going to have this, this super Venice that he calls it, right? You're, you've, got, you've got flooding, permanent flooding, up to about 46th Street. And what does that mean for how people move about the city? What does that mean for uh, in, in, a, in a rapidly decarbonizing economy where you don't have long-distance transport that's as easy? What does that mean for food production? Where do people get their vegetables from? Where do people get their produce from? What does it mean for the governance of small-scale organizations like a, an, an apartment co-op in New York City, right? These are the types of consequences. You have a global change. You have the, the, the effects are felt locally, right? And you have to play out how all these things are going to work, right? It's a model. <laughs> it's, it's, it's Kim Stanley Robinson's opinion of what's going to happen. But I don't know. I think he's on to something in, in uh, most of these things. Um, I know that Annalie Newitz spoke recently um, about, I don't, what was she talking about? Uh, science needs fiction. Science needs fiction. And uh, she had a, such a fabulous example of how you have, to, you have to come to grips with the consequences of your narrative arc. You're like, okay, so she's got this pirate in the Arctic, right, who's, who's on the internet a lot, on, a, on shipboard. And then she's like, oh, God. Where does she get the internet from, right? And so she had to invent something, to, the, a technology that, that provides internet in the Arctic. And, and you know, this is, this is the notion. You have to flesh out these worlds. You're playing with complex systems. It's actually not a huge point. I mean, well, it's, it's an important point, but it's not, it doesn't need to be belabored. Um, I, you know, this is a fan art for uh, Paolo Bacigalupi's uh, The, the Wind-Up Girl. And, you know, in a decarbonized world, Supply chains are going to be highly altered, right? How do you, where do you get your food from? Where's the energy to run manufacturing? Where does that come from? Right? If you have, a, if you have a, 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 an industrial plant that produces whatever the machines uh, that you're, you're trying to build, where do you get the power to, to run your machinery, right? These are all things that come out in, in the wind-up girl. So... 
That's point number one. Point number two has to do with imagining the future and imagining better worlds. And again, there's this terrific Moshe Hamid uh, quote, part of the great political crisis we face in the world today is a failure to imagine plausible, desirable futures. We're surrounded by nostalgic visions, violently nostalgic visions. Fiction can imagine differently. I think this is an enormously important idea and I feel like it probably resonates with anyone who is dissatisfied, say, uh, with the current administration and politics in America. We really are feeling this incredibly violently nostalgic moment. And, and typically these nostalgias are for things that really didn't happen, or they certainly didn't happen the way we remember them. Memory is, a, is an imperfect process. And so by writing fiction, we can imagine a better world. And I think this actually has really important implications for the type of fiction that we should write. And, and in particular, uh, I, I took all the slides out of all the ridiculous movies that have dealt with climate, but there are lots of them. You don't have to like think very hard about it. And what, what's the commonality of them? They're all post-apocalyptic. You know, we love Mad Max and Waterworld, and you know, we didn't love Waterworld, but <laughs> we love the idea of it, right? These are, these are post-apocalyptic stories, and uh, they're not better futures. Maybe there's some, her you know, uh, Katniss Everdeen or whoever, you know, comes in and, and does the heroic thing, and, and that's, that's interesting. But it's not, we're not imagining a better world. I think we need to do better in imagining better worlds. And the thing is, there's plenty of fiction that does exactly that. So that's the good news. Now we have to convince Hollywood and whoever makes TV shows. Um, the great Indian novelist Amitav Ghosh, in addition to a bunch of other literary intellectuals, Richard Powers, Robert McFarlane, Bill McKibben, decry the lack of climate themes in literary fiction. And this is something, honestly, I'm not quite that worried about. Uh, among other reasons, I think we have amazing literary fiction that deals with climate change. We have Barbara Kingsolver's uh, um, Flight Behavior. Um, we have, of course, Richard Powers himself with, uh, sorry, it's a little sluggish, with, uh, with The Overstory. Um, but I think this, this sort of questioning of are, are we hitting the sweet spot for the, the type of fiction we should be writing raises an important issue. And this has to do with the diversity of the story types and the diversity of the voices who are telling these stories. I like science fiction. Michael likes science fiction. I'm sure many people in this world like science fiction. Not everybody likes science fiction. I don't understand why, but it's true. And so if we have different voices telling stories about people dealing with the consequences of, of a changed world, we have a better chance of actually reaching people. Um, there's an, an, a very interesting body of work in psychology and neuroscience on, um, on the neuroscience and the psychology of uh, changing people's minds. And it turns out that when you try to use a story to change someone's mind, 
in order to, the, 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 the degree of behavior change is proportional to the degree to which the reader or the viewer relates to the central character, okay? So if you, just instrumentally, if you want to change people's behavior, if you want to make them concerned about climate change, if you want to encourage them to actually take political action, they have to read the story and be able to relate to the character. It's just that simple. And so this argues very strongly, I think, for casting as wide a net as we possibly can in, in fiction. Getting more diversity, a diversity of voices, a diversity of stories, a diversity of characters, so that these, these characters can resonate with different groups of people. Um, I've mentioned that we have uh, great literary fiction coming out. I, I, I feel like we're doing okay. Uh, I can't recommend flight behavior enough. I lived in, in Appalachia for a while, and so it really, it really re it's really not the type of book I normally read. I'm really more of a hard science fiction reader. I re uh, this is, it, it, it moves me. It's amazing. Uh, and, and Richard Powers' book, I'm still, the overstory, I'm still coming to grips with it. I finished it a year ago or wh whenever this summer, and I still, it's messing with my mind still. You know, I think about it a lot. Um, but they're all, you know, there's such a great cadre of, of, of climate fiction writers um, uh, so th that I'm not that concerned. By, I want to continue to push people to, to think about this from, from different types of stories. These are more sort of the science fiction types for the most part. Uh, from the bottom left, uh, Paolo Bacigalupi, um, uh, Margaret Atwood, Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, Octavia Butler, uh, some, some newer authors, uh, Sam Miller, uh, not as new an author, but new to climate fiction, Maggie, Maggie G, and of course, San Francisco's own, Annalie Newitz. So there's good news, and great news is that a lot of those books are back there uh, that you can peruse. Um, so I, I, I feel like the fiction is healthy. Um, we need to push for... Uh, this diversity of stories that we can have. All right. Wait. There we go. <clears throat> we are a highly social species. The term pro-social is used uh, to describe the, the type of human sociality. Uh, and uh, Joe Henrik an anthropologist at Harvard uh, has argued quite forcefully uh, that the thing that makes humans smart is not the fact that we are individually smart people, it's the fact that we together are amazing problem solvers. We have a collective intelligence uh, that's, that's pretty unique. Uh, and the way we go about this uh, is through social learning Right, we learn about complex things through, uh, through social learning. We learn about how to adapt to our world through a process of social learning where we imitate successful people, we have people who teach us, we, um, we, uh, yeah, we, we shamelessly copy, you know, this whole idea, monkey see, monkey do. Monkeys don't see and then do. 
It's, it's actually a human thing. It's, it's, it's it, this, this idea of being able to, to copy something, it's, it, it's us. It's not monkeys. It's, it's, uh, I know it's meant to be a put-down. Um, so a, a key element of social learning is narrative. We tell stories to teach our children. We tell stories to teach, e- teach each other. And one of the key capacities of learning through narrative is that we have to be able to take perspectives. We have to be able to take different perspectives. Uh, and a, probably a necessary tool for taking others' perspectives is the ca- capacity to have thoughts about thoughts. Okay, this is called metacognition. And when one has thoughts about other people's thoughts, that's, that's what's known as a theory of mind. Okay, and this is a, 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 it's a, a cottage industry in comparative psychology is figuring out, do orangutans have a theory of mind? They might. Chimpanzees don't. Gorillas don't seem to, right? It's, it's you know, it's, it's put whatever... You anesthet- so the, the classic paradigm for, for testing apes, by the way, is you, you put them to sleep, you anesthetize them, and then you paint a yellow dot on their forehead, and you give them a mirror. And if when they wake up kind of groggy, they walk over to the mirror, and they go, what is that, right? Then they have, they have this self, uh, self-awareness. Uh, it's probably not a perfect paradigm. Um, <laughs> Like if you didn't, if you just don't care that there's a dot on your forehead, does it mean you're not self-aware? Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so the theory, the theory of mind is probably central to this adaptation that we have, this learning through narrative, telling people stories. Uh, and Darwin had thoughts on this. All sentient beings develop through natural selection in such a way that pleasant sensations serve to guide and especially the pleasure derived from sociability and from loving our families, right? That, that, that selection favors social goods being pleasurable, right? And, and drives us to, to, to doing more uh, things like that. So theory of mind is, is probably a very important part of what makes humans human, it allows us to, to learn socially, uh, and, and a big part of learning socially is about telling stories that, that, that teach us. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit for the next couple minutes on, uh, on some neuroscience of storytelling and, 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 uh, and learning about stories. Uh, and let me see my notes here. All right. Uh, when you read a story, and, and th- th- we're going to come back to the theory of mind bit, right? It, it, it actually ties in. Uh, when you read a story, this is simply here to cue me to say that we have the somatosensory cortex runs right down along here, right along the postcentral gyrus. And you've seen it uh, drawn as a, as a homunculus, you know, the... the greatly exaggerated hand and nose and mouth and the huge lips, right? This is where all these projections happen. These are the parts of your brain that deal with, um, with, uh, with sensory perception and movement in your body. When you read a story and you're following along the action of the character and you're engaged in the story, and that's a really important caveat, you have to actually be engaged in the story. When you're engaged in the story and, and you're reading along, we see that the somatosensory cortex fires like crazy. 
as though you're living through the actions and the feelings and the, and the, the lived experience of the character. This is really, uh, is really interesting. It's really important. You're not obviously actually experiencing this. And, the, and this is actually, it turns out to be very, very similar to, um, to dream state, right? When, when you're dreaming, you're actually, your brain is actually sending signals and you're, you're flying by flapping your wings or something. Suppose you have wings. Um, you're, your, your brain is telling your arms to move, but they're not because you're in a, you're in a paralyzed state, right? So this is a, this is a similar type of, 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 of reading paralysis, right? You're, you're experiencing this uh, while reading, while not actually literally experiencing it. And some of the activation of our brains, different parts of our brains, different networks in our brains, is surprisingly long-lasting. Some of it, it just happens while you're reading it. Some of it lasts longer. This is a very complicated figure, and I didn't make it. But, I'm, but and it's always hard to try to explain other people's very complicated figures. Um, <clears throat> but the, the thing I want to draw your attention to are these plots here. The brains are distracting, I know. But the plots, this is a, a, a correlation between activity, the activity that you're doing, and uh, these different circuits that are highlighted here, uh, firing, be, lighting up in the, in the imagery. And what we see is that um, on the left, this is the perspective-taking uh, network, and it, when you read the story, so, that, so in, this, in this capacity, in this experiment, people uh, went in every day, uh, and, and had, had these things measured. They read a story for a, a week, and they, and they were measured then, and then they, they were measured after reading the story as well. And what we see is that the, the, the correlation goes up. It's significant. It's a big difference. Uh, it may not look dramatic, but it goes up. And this is the perspective-taking networks of the brain that are lighting up while reading the story. What's remarkable is that this, on the other hand, is the somatosensory cortex. This is that, that bit about the lived experience of the characters. And while it, it certainly goes up, and it actually looks like it goes up a little more dramatically, it stays up. It stays up for days, sometimes as, as much as weeks. Um, and so this suggests that there's, a, there's a, a powerful embodiment that goes on when you read stories that you're engaged in. And I think that this is the sort of thing that if we're going to think instrumentally about using fiction, these are the sorts of things that we have to look for. What are the things that have lasting impact? Um, I have some more ideas about uh, the perspective taking, but I'll never finish if I don't. Um, the amazing thing is, it's not just changes in our own brains, though, when we read a story. It turns out that when I tell a story and you listen to the story, again, if you're engaged, our brains actually will sync up. And this is part of this, this, this amazing uh, sociality that we have and, and, and the, the fact that our intelligence is tied to being social. Uh, Yuri Hansen, uh, Hassan at Princeton has done amazing work showing that people... Uh, the, the same regions, so they, they put them in, in uh, functional scanners, right? And, and they, they look at, the, at what regions are, are firing. And 
people will synchronize what's happening, the storyteller and the, and the, the listener to the story. And this is a remarkable uh, feature, I think. Um, it goes way back to, uh, that really interests me, is the, the, this notion of distributed con uh, cognition, right? And this is an idea that the anthropologist at, at UCSD, Edwin Hutchins, coined in the 80s, and he was studying the amazing uh, uh, South Pacific navigators. Here we've got some navigators, uh, uh, some sailors in, in the Trobriand Islands where, where he worked. You know, these guys would set out, and, and the, the, the chance of you just randomly going out and finding an island in the Pacific are pretty infinitesimal. And these guys did it all the time, and they did it through a remarkable coordination of what Hutchins uh, then coined as this distributed cognition, which he then took to study uh, the, the, um, the bridges of aircraft carriers and, and, and flight crews and the sorts of things. So I feel like there's some really interesting um, neuroscience lurking here to talk about, about uh, coordination of behavior and getting people literally on the same team to solve common problems here. All right. I was 15 feet from this guy, but I was safely in, in a Land Rover, right? If I had not been, I would have been a little stressed out, right? My adrenal cortex would have been squirting out cortisol, the stress hormone, Right as I saw this guy, this is this is an adaptive response. We we undergo some sort of acute stressor. Our our uh, adrenal glands go into action. They squirt cortisol. We get in a physiological state to, uh, that that prepares us for the sorts of things that we're likely to have to do to adapt to the stressor. Okay, um, one of the truly remarkable things about reading a story is that, and again. When you're engaged, when you're engaged with the story, you get a major ac activation of uh, your HPA axis, your hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. This is the, the classic stress response. Um, it's the, the, the system that regulates stress, but it's also essential in the control of the immune system, uh, mood, uh, and sexuality and energy. Right? And, and I think that this is, this is the, the foundation, the physiological foundation of that feeling when you're engaged in a story and you're really nervous. I mean, reading flight behavior, I'm just so anxious about what's going to happen to Della Robia again, you know, because what new humiliation of being poor in America is she going to have to endure, right? And, and it's that feeling of needing to turn the page. This is this activation of the H HPA axis, okay? It's cool, is it useful instrumentally? And I have to give props out to my Stanford colleague, Robert Sapolsky. Many of you are probably familiar. But he's an incredible, incredible public speaker uh, and, and a, a, just a, a huge intellect. Um, was, has been a good mentor to me. Um, why do we care about cortisol other than it's kind of cool that you get this physiological response to reading a story? It turns out that stress opens people's minds to behavior change. The right kind of stress opens people's minds to behavior change. University College London uh, psychologist, neuroscientist, Tali Sharot, uh, is most famous. She has a, a, a fairly recent book on changing people's minds. 
And she's, she's quite famous for her, her technical work on what's called a positivity bias, okay? So that you're, you're faced with, with information that comes at you from the world. You have priors, prior beliefs about what the world is like. And when you get information that's good news relative to your desires, you take that and you say, good, my hypothesis is supported. And when you get bad news, you kind of ignore it. You don't pay as much attention to it, which seems a little paradoxical. It seems like for a survival algorithm, you'd want to learn more from bad news. That's the way I think about these things. But it turns out that isn't the way a lot of people uh, uh, go about doing it until you put them under stress. When you put people under stress, when you, you give them some sort of like one of these psychologists sort of like funny things that you do, you tell them that they're going to have to give a public lecture after they do your, your test or something like that. It turns out you open people's minds to both good news and bad news, and they behave like proper Bayesians. They update their priors in a rational kind of way. Isn't that cool? And that means that they've had their HPA access uh, activated. It means that they're, they're got, they've got that cortisol response. And that's exactly what good fiction does to you. Is it possible that there's a physiological foundation for good fiction changing people's uh, uh, valence bias, right? Their, their willingness to accept good and bad news. It's a hypothesis. I want to talk about one last thing before wrapping up, which is some really cool work uh, that I've, I, I've encountered by a couple political scientists, um, um, Inga Haas and, and uh, Bill Cunningham, I think, Haas and Cunningham, 2014. And I was looking for pictures that I could use to, to highlight cultishness. My name is Jamie Jones, right? James is my given name. Many people would go with Jim. But I'm a certain vintage such that Jim Jones <laughs> turns out to be Let's just say you don't want to take Kool-Aid from me. No one ever did. And I thought about putting a Jim Jones, but I just feel like it's kind of in bad taste. But there's a, there's a remarkable body of psychological research that deals with uh, what people do. And, 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 you know, you tend to associate this with millenarian cults. You know, the end is nigh. It's going to, the world is going to end on January 29th at 9 p.m. We've got 40 minutes, people, right? And then it doesn't end, right? And that seems like it would be devastating for your belief system, right? But it turns out, amazingly, it usually isn't. And so how can that possibly be? And that, that's actually really bad news if we're trying to change people's minds in an instrumental way, okay? So the, the cool work that, that they've done, and it relates to my interest in decision science and, and uncertainty, uh, they have this model. It's my only like sort of academic-y model here. Uh, it turns out that when you have a lot of uncertainty, and bear in mind, we have a ton of uncertainty about climate change. We have real epistemic uncertainty about what's going to happen 
right, what the magnitude of things is. We have a lot of real scientific uncertainty. We also have a climate, as it were, where highly motivated groups of people are trying to increase the uncertainty, right? They want to really highlight the fact, just like the cigarette companies, the tobacco companies did, the oil companies now are trying to highlight the uncertainty. So we have uncertainty. And then the question is, is there a threat? This is, how do, you, how do people respond to uncertainty? If there is no threat, it turns out that your brain opens up and you're willing to explore new ideas. If you are threatened, if you're very, and, and the threat here is about the threat to your identity, right? The threat to your core identity. If your core identity is threatened, if people say, you know, the world didn't end and you, your cult says it was going to, you say, oh, well, our praying worked and we've gotten a reprieve. <laughs> so we're going to keep doing what we've been doing and you guys should probably do it too. Defensive closed-mindedness, okay? So this is another reason, I think, why we need to think about the types of narratives we put out there and associate with climate change. Do, do we want them all to be about you know, there not being any landmass on, on the earth? Do we want them to be about a fiery hellscape? I, we can be realistic, but we, we want to think carefully about how we use fear as a tool for motivating people because fear frequently leads to retrenchment. So let me just wrap up um, by talking about, you know, the three things. I just love it, you know. We're, here we are, we're right, we're right in, in Starbase Aca Starfleet Academy. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's gotta be like right next door, right? <laughs> I guess it's in the Marin Headlands, but uh, whatever, you know. So, uh, I, look, I just said science fiction. Climate fiction allows us to imagine better worlds. And we're not going to work towards a better world if we can't imagine a better world. So let's get out there and tell stories about the possibility of our human futures. Something that climate, change, or climate fiction is really good for. <laughs> Shared experience. God, man. Remember? Remember when? I went, and, when I, the day I learned Tony Bourdain died, I went and slurped some fun, drank some beer down in Sunnyvale, because there's no such thing in Palo Alto. Um, and I thought long and hard about this scene. God, it's so beautiful. Shared experience, right? Fiction, stories, narratives, they, they allow us to put together a shared experience. And this is another really important thing about convincing people about that you're right and they're wrong. That, you know, you'd think you want to focus on, on the facts uh, that, that you differ on. In fact, what you really want to do is focus on the things that you agree on. When, once you establish a rapport of a shared experience, that's when you can begin to do the hard work of, of negotiating uh, people's uh, differences. Okay, so fiction allow, gives us a, a mechanism for inducing these shared experiences. And then, more speculatively, Robert with his baboon friend, stress opens your mind to different types of information. And if we can write engaging narratives that get people turning pages and get people caring about the characters, we might have a hope of actually 
getting rid of some of these cognitive biases that seem to get in the way of taking real action on climate change. I try to be an optimistic person, but I, I have to admit it's hard sometimes. And I find Gramsci's idea here uh, really motivating, written from an Italian prison cell. Right? Pessimism of the intellect. You know, imagine the worst case scenario, but optimism of will. We have to imagine that future because the, the alternative really isn't so great. Um, and I want to end just with, with Ursula Le Guin, who is so unbelievably tied up, I can't even begin to tell you how tied up she is in so much of what I've said in weird ways that you don't even know. Uh, but uh, she says, I think hard times are coming when we'll be wanting the voices of writers who can see alternatives to how we live now and can see through our fear-stricken society and its obsessive technologies to other ways of being and even imagine some real grounds for hope. We will need writers who can remember freedom, poets, visionaries, the realists of a larger reality. Amen. Thanks. Okay, now let's step out of the way. Come right back up. Thank you, Jamie. Um, we, we, only, we don't have too much time, but uh, I thought at, at this point, uh, a great thing to have would be to ask uh, one of our favorite science fiction writers and recent uh, long now speaker, uh, Hanu Rajanimi is here, an actual science fiction writer in the real world. Give a bit of a round of applause, and uh, maybe you've got a couple chances if you're up for it uh, to chat a little bit with Jamie. Yeah. Um, Jamie, thank you so much for a very passionate and wonderful talk. I, I, I felt I uh, learned an enormous amount and uh, feel very inspired to, to write some, some climate fiction. Nice. Um, but, um, <laughs> yeah, so, so your job is What done. was it? Was it the shared experience or was it the stress of sitting in the front row? Or <laughs> no, I, I think actually um, uh, the, the fact that you tie it so beautifully to our uh, evolutionary past as well, as well how, and, and I think nothing could be appropriate if we, if we use this superpower that evolution has given us for thinking about the future to actually, you know, save our evolutionary future. Um, uh, just a few, few thoughts, uh, thoughts though. Um, uh, you emphasize a lot um, the role of the, the novel or, or, yeah. or sort of prose and, and, and fiction. And uh, of course, I completely agree with you that it's a very, very powerful medium and yeah, perhaps unique yeah. in the sense that it gives us this interiority of, um, of, of another person yeah, and, yeah. and sort of puts us directly inside their heads. Um, but of course, there are many people in the world who do not read novels. And, uh, and, and there has been this slow decline of, um, yeah. of, of the literary, uh, literary novel in, in terms of popularity. And uh, so, so I'd sort of I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on what other mediums could be yeah. more accessible, more powerful. I mean, computer games come to come to mind to me. To me, yeah. uh, given that we are dealing with complex systems, and games are an inherently systemic medium where you can tweak yeah, parameters yeah. and play with things. And of course, they put us directly yeah. right in the center center of action. So, so just wondering if you have any any thoughts on that. No, I do, um, and that's a great point. You know that that there is not a giant reading public. Um, and this is one of the facts that I think actually argues for the importance of 
continuing on the science fiction element of, of, of cli-fi, which is that there's always the hope if you write some really great, like just completely like bitchin' story about dragons and climate change and spaceships coming to Earth or whatever, that HBO is gonna make the next Game of Thrones, <laughs> right? I mean, the reach of that would be extraordinary. Um, and I, I would love to see uh, people in the visual uh, media, I don't know what you call that, movies and TV shows, you know, more engaged with this. Um, it's another point that's sort of a side point, and I'll get to, to more of what you were asking about. If you look at representations of scientists, and if you look at representations of civil servants in movies, they're almost across the board negative. And, and one of the remarkable things about, well, there are a couple of remarkable things about the movie Arrival is, is that Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner were unmitigated heroes, right? And they're real academics, they're real scientists. And, they're, and, and Renner, I mean, it's, it's kind of an amazing thing. He actually learns something from, the physicist learns something from the linguist, and he's like, yeah, you've got it, right? And I mean, there's, there's a lot to be said for that type of representation. I think we need a lot more of it. Um, it's also remarkable that they made that incredible short story into a movie, and it was a good movie. Um, Regarding video games, I'm not a gamer, but I think that there's a lot uh, to be said there. Uh, my, my concern is that it, 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 it reaches a very specific audience still. Like, it, it isn't a broad... Uh, I mean, lots of people play games, but they, they, this tends to be uh, middle-class, mostly white kids in, in you know, the U.S. and Europe and... and, and you know, those are, are people we need to we need to reach. Absolutely, um, it would be cool to figure out how we could get this uh, this technology more broadly used. My colleague at Stanford, Jeremy Balenson, uh, does virtual reality work on on sort of giving people experiences in um, in environmental situations. You know, he he you go into his lab and you go like this, and you can feel your hand chopping down a tree. And it turns out that people like trees more afterwards. Um, so I think that there's a lot of amazing potential. It would be great to figure out how we could make it as broad as possible, though. Um, that's probably good for that question, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, and, I, and I think uh, the book, even the paper book, remains like, like this incredible uh, cheap medium that doesn't yeah. require any power and that can, can uh, reach, reach everywhere. Um, another thing I found myself thinking about was... Um, what would it be like to write a story from the point of view of a um, climate change skeptic? Um, yeah. So sort of like those those uh, very fundamentalist Christian movies where that has a, have an atheist character who then experiences a miraculous conversion, or or, or maybe yeah, not. But yeah. um, I was curious if there there has been any uh, um, neuroscientific research on how people react to stories about about characters who have very opposite views to themselves, or does that they are too different from me? That's a great question. I wish I knew the answer to that, and, and uh, I'll have to look more. I, um, solar, right? Um, who, who wrote Solar? McEwen. McEwen. Ian McEwen. I, 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 my sense is that there's, a, there's an element of that in, in, in Solar. Um, it's a really cool idea, and, and it would be the sort of thing. So some of you may have seen Shaz Atari's um, uh, talk here at the Interval, uh, and she's really interested in, 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 she's more on the, like, the, the, you know, lab psychology sort of end of this, 
trying to figure out what are the elements of stories that get people to, to want to take action on, on climate-related issues. And uh, this seems like the sort of thing that would be really ripe for Shaz or people, people she's working with to, uh, to take up. Like, it, it, do you get a, a, a measurable effect of having a, a, an antagonist actually make a conversion? Maybe one, one final question would be, uh, real quick, is um, what do you think are best examples of uh, fiction really changing people's minds historically? Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you have any favorite, favorite examples of that kind. My wife is a Civil War historian, and Uncle Tom's Cabin has got to be, you know, the, I, I mean, it's, it's, the, uh, it's the prototype for this type of uh, socially relevant literature. You know, it's not great literature, right? It's, it's kind of a schmaltzy story. Um, but it, man, it had a big effect. Um, my daughter has been suggesting to me that um, uh, *The Grapes of Wrath* is is a sort of early climate fiction. You know, you've got these these displaced people; they're moving bodies across a landscape. They're they're fleeing largely a, cl a climatic event, and you see their their, uh, their the just horrible lives they lead. Uh, and the, the consequences of this, this broken environment. Um, I don't know if that had uh, its intended effect. Another interesting one is, is uh, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, you know, writing about the meatpacking industry. And what's interesting, and this is something that Michael's cautioned me on a couple times, you know, the unintended consequences, right? They're complex systems. We can't, we, we don't know with different initial conditions, we might get different results. And Sinclair was writing this book, you know, from the perspective of the workers. When people read it, they got really upset about the, the, the food, the, like the, the, how uh, safe the food was. It's like, well, yeah, that too, but also <laughs> the workers. Um, so those are a couple examples. I mean, you know, something like Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. It isn't really fiction, but I mean, it starts off with... Uh, with a, a, a scenario, right? I mean, I think if we thought hard about it, we could come up with a lot of these things. Um, but as I said, I'm not a literary guy. Um, and <laughs> honey, before you, uh, while, while we've got you up here, um, so most of your published work hasn't been uh, focused on comment. I think there's some, you know, a few things in there, but, but I, I think you said you've got something that you have worked on and you've looked at it. I'm curious both what have you thought about and what attracts you as far as um, aspects around climate change to, to write about that you've thought about or, or might be working on? Uh, and also, as a reader, because you've probably read more science fiction than the two of us put together, um, wh what are some of the things that you've seen uh, authors do in, in a cli-fi space that, that, uh, that stand out to you and, and why? Um, yeah, so, so I'm, I'm really just dabbling, dabbling in this sphere uh, right now. I have a, a novella I've been working on for a while, on and off, which I, which I actually hope to finish uh, sometime this year, called Brother's Milk, um, which uh, touches upon um, very much the, uh, the uh, human mobility and, and survival aspects. There, there's this pop-up uh, village in, or, or pop-up city in uh, desertified uh, southern Italy with, with various... Uh, uh, displaced peoples uh, uh, trying trying to survive. There's a uh, there's a political entity that they have to deal with called the uh, the Green Caliphate, which is uh, radicalized Islam, uh, which is also very 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 pro environment. Um, and um, uh, so so I'm kind of kind of interested in in 
paradoxical or seemingly contradictory combinations of ideologies that could, could emerge uh, in, in, in some of these possible futures. Um, in terms of what I've, what I've seen, I think uh, Jamie did a great job of uh, mentioning a few examples. Uh, I also think uh, short stories in general are a great format yeah. for, for uh, science fiction in general. Uh, and there's a few anthologies. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's one, one I, I really like called Solar Punk, which, uh, oh, yeah, which yeah. is Solar Punk is uh, a, a name some people have given to, to a hopeful, hopeful yeah. Wi-Fi uh, genre, so so I recommend you uh, check out that one. Uh, there's an older anthology uh, that that has similar themes called Shine, which uh, is more mm. broader than than climate, but also does a great job uh, of uh, outlining some very optimistic and, and mm. yet engaging mm -hmm. engaging futures. So so there's some some examples. That's great. That's and great. there's the new one that just came out, the new anthology, like literally came out today. I got yeah. an email about it. So yeah, so Arizona State, some friends of ours yeah, at Arizona yeah. State uh, University, let us know, and we'll be posting this on our social media for for long now. Um, it, it just came out today. It's free, a downloadable ebook. It's actually the second edition that they've done. Uh, both have been uh, actually fiction writing contests that have been judged by science fiction writers. Kim Stanley Robinson did this latest one, uh, and it looks really cool. I'm blanking on the name right now, but, but we'll, we'll put it out there. And, and like I said, it's free, so definitely check that out. Um, let's, I'll give a big round of applause to Hanu. Thank you so much yeah, for, for jumping in here. And, and we do want to sneak in, we're running, running a little bit over, but uh, we do want to sneak in a, a couple of your questions. So uh, Roseanne's got the, the mic, please uh, get her attention. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, so, so the, it's interesting that <laughs> um, people need to be under stress to, to open up the possibility of switching tracks, as it were, and change, change their mind of this stuff. Is massive fear of climate change going to bring us all into, the, into that state? If, if, I mean, I guess, I guess maybe one of the things that I'm forward is that, um, and, and someone has said this, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry not to be able to, to fully quote it, but all fiction is going to be climate fiction in the very near future because it's going to be more of a reality that we're dealing with. Yeah. And, and it already That's Annalise is. said that. Yeah, Annalise said, yeah. yeah. So um, I knew it sounded familiar. And uh, so... <laughs> Um, salvage the Bones, um, which is about Katrina, yeah. the wake of Katrina. Um, anything that's dealing with some of these massive um, uh, weather disasters are inherently doing that. And, and in a way, you know, we didn't. I don't think. I don't think we touched on uh, Stan's notion, Kim Stanley Robinson's notion of the um, of, of of looking at both the present time and looking at a possible future. But but in a way. Uh, those two, so so any any future that we're looking at is also reflecting the moment that we're we're in, um, and as those two in near near term future, sci-fi or cli-fi, are super close, inherently we're probably going to identify with those people more, which is one of the other conditions you think. Uh, and, any thoughts on that? <laughs> Lots of thoughts. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's dangerous to write about the near term, yeah. right? It's harder in, in a lot of ways. If you write about people 3,000 years in the future, but for all we know, we've sprouted wings by that point. We can fly to the stars, mm. right? Whereas there has to be a, a, enough continuity if you're writing about, say, 20, 50 years in the future that it seems realistic and that the, the feel of it is right, but, but a lot's going to change. Um, mm -hmm. 
So it's, it's a, I think it's a real technical challenge for the futurist. Um, uh, and I, I completely agree that, you know, Margaret Atwood right, said it's not climate change, it's everything change. And, and when, when the, the world is, is in these tightly coupled systems, you know, you, you throw something big at the sort of top level system, it's going to have cascading effects and ramifying effects, not just cascading as in coming down, but ramifying as in going side to side and, and having just uh, huge effects. Um, so, I, yeah, we, if we want to write about the present anytime from now to the future, the climate background has probably got to be in there. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, we've got a question right here. There we go. So, so, so also related to this stress thing, <clears throat> one of the common things just in talking about climate is to give people few little things they can do to release yeah. their stress. And, yeah. you know, and so uh, without having the stress of thinking about the big picture, even seeing the system. So I wonder if uh, just sort of in the, the generic kind of climate community conversation, if you have thoughts about the jump to give people little solutions, if that's a short circuiting of that stress or, or how would you, how do you, how do you perceive that? Yeah, I mean, this is another thing that Tali Sharot talks about uh, is, is giving people, uh, empowering people and feeling like they have some control and that, that they're much more willing to, to sort of engage in behavior change if they feel like they have control. Uh, so I think that that's a really important, uh, an important feature of any sort of strategy for getting people to, to take action. The, I, I mean, I guess the concern is you want the things that people do to feel like they're in control to be meaningful. Uh, and, and, you know, if, if, like, I feel good about recycling plastic, but, you know, China isn't taking plastic anymore, and so it's actually ending up in the, in the ocean, you know, the, uh, it might be somewhat self-defeating there. So, um, yeah, absolutely. And, I, and that actually, your mentioning stress reminded me of the other part of your question that you know, Robert Sapolsky talks at length about the difference between chronic and acute stress, right? And acute stress is the stuff that's good for us. It's, what, it's why we exercise, it's why we read fiction and get engaged and why we like that, why we keep going back to it. And uh, you know, just constant doom and gloom, I'm, I'm all for realism, but the constant doom and gloom that puts us under this continual chronic stress is, is not the way to, to uh, change people's behavior. So, so, yeah. so, so getting kind of a, a bolt of an experience, a, a yeah. singular experience, yeah. as opposed to being terrorized, essentially. As opposed to being in a low-grade, yeah. constant terror. Right. Yeah. Right. How's everybody feeling out there tonight? <laughs> um, we got another question over here, I think. Hi, thanks. So people often don't feel stressed unless they're in the situation. So stress seems more less effective as a proactive rather than a reactive approach. Yeah. I'm not sure how effective stress would be as like premeditative. And then the second part of my question is, you tie in a lot about evolutionary psychology as a way to kind of help people resonate with the story so that they take action on it. But evolutionary psychology and natural selection I mean, most people take the path of least resistance, and most people um, are selfish. How is that, how can you leverage and utilize that for something like advocating for social good, like climate change? Yeah, I, that's a great question. I, I, I guess I would challenge the, the idea that we're, we're fundamentally uh, selfish. 
um, there, that there's, there's an enormous uh, body of research that, that's building right now uh, talking about the, the, the fact that, and so, so people who've, who've talked about this, uh, you know, Sam Bowles has, has um, a recent book on this. He's an economist, um, and I wish I could remember the name of it. It's a f- fabulous book. On, on basically arguing that, that, that economic incentives aren't enough to encourage good behavior, but it turns out the good news is that people actually want to engage in good behavior. People are pro-social under the right, uh, under the right circumstances. And so um, I, I guess the, the, that's the key, right, is to make it under the right circumstances. People have to be engaged in their communities. It also helps if you don't tell them that, uh, you know, that people are fundamentally these neoliberal agents who are, who are constantly out there trying to maximize their economic utility and say, yeah, actually, there's, there's a place for, for social good and for, for morality in these sort of things. Um, so I actually find the, the, the current work in, in, uh, in evolutionary studies uh, very hopeful in that regard. Um, I'm sorry, the first part of your question... Oh, oh right, and this is the amazing thing about, about, the, this, about the sort of neuroscience of, of reading stories and, and watching stories, and, and it's something I'd like to see a more robust literature on, like that we need more research on this, because... You know, we, we were simultaneously, as I'm telling you about all these cool results of neuroscience, I'm also dealing with the fact that there's this thing called the replication crisis or the replicability crisis, right? That 85% of medical studies are underpowered and can't be replicated, and it's about the same for psychology as well, right? So it would be nice to have a more robust sort of body of work saying this, but from what I can tell, the, the, there, is, there is strong evidence that the 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 reading of a story, the telling of a story, the, the comprehension of a story puts you in that state that's as though you're experiencing it. Obviously a little safer, right? You're not, you don't have that lion right there, um, but it, it, it seems to me like that's promising for uh, putting you in the state for changing, being open to changing your mind. Thanks. Um, all we're going to be able to have for, for questions right now, but you're going to stick around. Yeah, um, and uh, and there is a lot. I know there's a lot that we didn't even touch on and, and, and background on what's there. So I hope you'll stick around. I want to give a, a quick shout out, first of all, to Borderlands who are in the back. Those are who are in, in the room. Yeah. <laughs> Local bookstores. Everyone here knows they covered our chime generator table with like literally dozens of books and, and probably close to two dozen titles or, or more um, of, of climate fiction of various sorts. That's the list that you've been compiling and in dialogue with Borderlands to some extent. Um, you are going to be publishing that uh, list just on your blog and, and we'll be yeah. uh, sending it out there. So keep an eye out for that. Um, I, I also want to mention, so uh, Shazina Tari's talk which you mentioned is, is on our website, on the Interval site. Um, we'll, we'll also send out a link to that. And you mentioned uh, Jeremy Balanson, Balanson's work at Stanford about VR and empathy. And uh, Kara Platoni, who's spoken for us, uh, we, she talks a, a bit about that uh, work in her talk uh, that she gave for us. And um, a couple other things you've talked about, I, I think we're going to be talking about later on this year as well. So keep an eye on, on what we're doing here for this. Um, Jamie, as far as this work goes and what you're thinking about next, and, and I mean, I, I can't just to put it in context again. I mean, this is not your, um, your, your primary work. It's very much kind of a passion project that brings some of your work into other 
uh, other interests. So are you going to continue this? Is this, is this, what, do, you, do you have a sense of what the life of this is going to be? I have a feeling it could take over my life if I'm not <laughs> careful. Um, I'm sure Hanu has thoughts on that. I don't know. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, maybe, I, you know, I have this unpublishable paper, right, that I've been working on. I, I, I write it, I was like, where, where the hell am I going to publish this? My God. Because it's not an essay, like, for, I don't know, The Atlantic or something, some sort of, but it's, 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 it's kind of academic, but it's, like, not, it, it, yeah, there's, so I, I don't know. We'll see what the reception is, I guess. I think, I think this is... I respond to positive reinforcement. Right? All right, like, well, well uh, I think we can get a bunch of that. But a second. <laughs> I, I have to say, this is also kind of the fourth kind of my favorite talk, on top of the other three that I mentioned earlier, because it's the kind of talk of like... I've hit a home run. Remember that talk about client, climate science fiction? Yeah, yeah, but, but remember that one talk about the guy who was really into gonorrhea? Uh, <laughs> And, and all things, they're, 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 uh, the, the eclecticism <laughs> of this talk in and of itself, people will realize later they're talking about the same talk. Um, can we get some positive reinforcement for tonight's speaker, please? Thank you. Um, and, and as Jamie knows, because he keeps coming back here, uh, we have a, a, a Long Now Challenge coin uh, for you as a thank, thank you for being here. Hanu, I'm going to give you your second one for, uh, for bravely stepping up here. And, and because you're a three-timer and I want to do something a little bit special, uh, this is a, a Stuart Brand autographed copy of The Clock for the Long Now oh, wow, uh, cool. that, that he signed wow. for you. Uh, you. So, you know, just, just to encourage you all to hit the triple crown here at... Uh, <laughs> at Interval as well. Uh, one more big round of applause and thank you guys for coming out and being a great audience. Nice. If you enjoyed this talk, we hope you'll subscribe to hear more. You might also like Long Now's other podcast, Seminars About Long-Term Thinking, with more than 200 more long-term thinking lectures hosted by Stuart Brand. Subscribe to both at longnow.org slash podcast or wherever you like to listen.